let's go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We have been journeying through the book of Mark over the last several weeks, and today we have a doozy of a text. Um, So I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll jump in. Mark 6, verses 1 through 13. Mark 6, 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, I want to start off this morning with a question and it's not an easy question, to be honest, um, I don't, so I don't necessarily want you to answer out loud, uh, but just think about it in your own head. Uh, but here's the question. What's the worst thing that a person could do? What's the worst thing a person could ever do? So let me say some of what some of your answers might be. Some of you might say, well, the worst thing a person could do is lie or, or cheat. You might say a worst thing a person could do is murder. You might say the worst thing that a person can do could be to be an Aggie or to be a Longhorn, right? Um, There's lots of answers you could give for this answer. However, I want to suggest that you're all wrong, whatever you think your answer is, that you're all wrong, that there is a sin that at one time or another, every person has committed. It's not something that we often think about, even though it is often warned against in Scripture. It's by far the worst of all sins, and it is the root of, of all sins. It is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief. In John 16, when Jesus is talking about the helper, how he's leaving and he's sending a helper, uh, that the helper, the Holy Spirit, will come into the world after his departure. Here's what he says the Holy Spirit will do in John 16. He says, when he comes, the helper, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and concerning sin because they do not believe in me. In fact, unbelief was the root of the original sin in Genesis 3. Did God really say? And most people today assume that we have won the game of life because we have not done the worst thing. But we should be careful and consider that a hardened heart towards God is by far more dangerous than any moral sin that we could ever commit. And here's what we learned from the text today on how, what Jesus thinks and feels about unbelief. It says, if you read the text, did you you notice how he responded to their unbelief? 
He marveled at it. He marveled at it. That's where we're at today in our text. Today we are going to see Jesus rejected. Instead of being received as Savior, he will encounter unbelief. And so let me map it out for you uh, where we're going to go today. We have two different moments in the life of Jesus that we're going to look at. They're very different moments, but they are uniquely connected by the theme of rejection. That in our first, first moment, Jesus is returning to his hometown only to be rejected. And in our second moment, Jesus is going to send out his disciples and he's going to tell them how they should respond when they are received and how they should respond when they are rejected. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus essentially puts them in a situation where they're going to watch him be rejected and then go out themselves to be potentially rejected themselves. So I think this, these two moments are connected and there's purpose uh, in Mark putting them next to each other. So let's just jump in in verse 1. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, where is there? There is Capernaum, and they have arrived at Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. Nazareth was a town around 500 people. So it was a small town. It was smaller than Belton or Temple or um, Killeen. And before we jump into this first moment, I want us to remember what these disciples had just experienced, okay? The visit to Nazareth comes on the heels of seeing Jesus do several things, right? Seeing him control nature, seeing him cast out multiple demons out of one man, um, seeing Jesus heal a bleeding woman, and seeing Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. And more than that, more than just the things that he did, consider the people of faith that he, they encountered, right? It, it wasn't just that they saw him do great things. They also saw people who had great faith. I mean, the demon-possessed guy wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. He begged Jesus, hey, take me with you. And Jesus said no. Um, the bleeding woman was healed because of her faith. He, he said, your faith has made you Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, came bowing at Jesus' feet, begging him, right? So they saw great people of faith. So now they are coming to Nazareth on the heels of seeing incredible miracles and after encountering people of faith. And if you're a disciple at this point, this might not be you, but this is where my mind goes because this is, I think, how I would think, right? If I'm them, I'm thinking, we're unstoppable. Like, no one can touch us. We have the guy who controls nature. We have rulers of the synagogues bowing at our feet. We're raising the dead to life. No one could ever doubt what we're doing. They would be fools if they did. And to this point, Jesus has been making this ministry thing look easy. Stay with me. I mentioned that I believe that these two moments that we're looking at today are connected. So look down at verse 7. It says, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. So he's getting ready to send the disciples out on their own for the first time. And the danger for the disciples is that they are going to go forward with unrealistic expectations, that they would go out and they would think, nothing can stop me. There's no opposition to what we're doing there's no opposition to what Jesus is asking us to do. We're going to heal the sick. We're going to cast out demons. People are going to fall at our feet and call Jesus Lord, and it's going to be no problem. But this moment in Nazareth is going to serve as a reality check for them. 
that being a disciple on mission for the glory of Christ is often frustrating, confusing, and can be at times disappointing. Maybe that's just my experience. And this is a good lesson for all of us. He brings them to Nazareth, his hometown where his family's at, where he grew up with these people. And if you ever think that your friends think that you're just too impressive, I don't know if you have that problem, but if you ever do, just bring them home to your family, right? I mean, it won't be long until you hear how, they try, how you tried to eat dog food until you were four years old. I'm not saying that's what my family would tell you. If they do, they're lying, okay? If, that's why you haven't met them. I'm just kidding. Um, so Jesus brings his disciples to meet his family. He does some teaching in the synagogue, and the people are astonished in verse 2. And, and it can be tempting to read this in kind of a positive tone, right? Like, man, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? But this isn't a wow kind of astonishment. This is more of a huh kind of astonishment. Like, remember, not long ago, his family was seeking him out because they thought he was crazy. They thought he was losing his mind. And what they can't figure out is how the Jesus that they knew, which was a common name in the first century, by the way, it'd be like naming your kid Ben today. Sorry if your name's Ben, but there's a lot of Bens out there. It's like, oh yeah, remember Ben? He's back in town, and he's kind of lost his mind, right? They can't figure out how this man, who they knew as a little kid, has been able to do such great things. Jesus comes back, and they are filled with skepticism. Skepticism. Where did this man get these things? They won't believe in him, and they are blinded to see his true identity. And verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with, with, here with us? It says they took offense at him. Is this the guy we knew? Is this the guy who grew up with us? They, they reference his family. Jesus has a big family. And remember, it's a small town. Everyone knows each other. Okay, and we don't know why he was referred to as the son of Mary here. That was very uncommon. Uh, you would be normally referred to under your father's name, so the son of Joseph. And we don't know where Joseph is. We don't know if he's died or we don't know where Joseph is, but there, there are some that believe that he is referenced as the son of Mary because if you'll recall, Mary was unmarried when she became pregnant with Jesus. So some people think this is a slight. This is meant to be an insult. But whatever the reasoning, it doesn't matter. The reality is calling him the son of Mary is not a compliment. It's also important to note that later on, some of Jesus' siblings will go on to become pillars of the early church, right? I mean, you have James, uh, which later becomes known as James the Just, the same James that leads the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he's martyred in 62 AD, the same James that wrote the book of James. Uh, you have Judas, who wrote the book of Jude. Jude 1.1, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, this is interesting. Why is he called Jude and not Judas? Like, why does he change his name? Well, after Judas, the disciple, betrayed Jesus, every, like most people named Judas changed their name to Jude. True story. Um, you don't see a lot of kids running around with the name Adolf, right? Like, they just did not want to be associated with Judas. And so Jesus had at least two sisters. They aren't mentioned by name, probably because they're married and identify with a different name. But in, in this moment, all of his siblings reject his identity as God. John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. 
So let's ask a question. Why? Why didn't they believe in Jesus' true identity at this moment? I mean, if anyone was going to believe in who Jesus was, wouldn't it make sense that it's his family? It's his family. I mean, if anyone's going to believe, it's going to be those who know him, those in the town of Nazareth. How can it be that those who knew him best were the ones who would reject him? Well, I think there are several reasons, not being the least, by the way, that God has a specific time when he's going to reveal who Jesus is for each person, including us, that it's according to his timing and his sovereignty. But one of the reasons that I think is, that is applicable to us in our time is that their familiarity with Jesus, they were familiar with who he was, that familiarity had blinded them from truly seeing him. That they had become with, familiar with Jesus their, their entire life. They'd seen him running around the neighborhood, seen him eating meals with his family, sat in synagogue with him. He looked just like one of them. They were too familiar with him to believe that he could be the Messiah. This is Mary's son. This is the carpenter. So Jesus says in verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor. This was a common saying in Old Testament, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. A more modern term might be familiarity breeds contempt. They were contempt at him. Or in the context of this verse, familiarity breeds unbelief. Familiarity breeds unbelief. So here's a question for us to ponder. Is it possible to be so familiar with Jesus that you can't really see who he is? Could it be possible that we can become so familiar with Jesus or the Christian life that we minimize the realities of sin, grace, and the authority and glory of Christ? That we can attribute being a follower of Christ to showing up at a gathering like this and just knowing some information about him. We're familiar with him. When I uh, worked in youth and college ministry, I would see this all the time, all the time. You would have these students that had been around church and Christians their entire life. They had formerly been around Christianity, but they had not experienced Christ himself. So you would ask them a question like, okay, what is a disciple? What's a disciple? And they would say, well, a disciple is someone who goes to church. A disciple is someone who reads their Bible. So they were familiar with Jesus. They were familiar with answering questions about Jesus, but their familiarity had blinded them from the true joy of salvation that is given by Jesus. And as followers of Christ, we have to be so careful. Parents, you have to be so careful. We as a church have to be so careful that we aren't simply creating an environment of familiarity rather than genuine worship. One of the things that we cannot afford to do is create a religious program called Renewal Church that just breeds familiarity instead of the practice of genuine worship. And the same thing is true as you, <coughs> as you think about like your kids or if you live in a dorm room in an apartment <coughs> and you have roommates. If all we are doing is modeling a familiarity with Jesus that is void of genuine worship, then we have taken the lifeblood out of the gospel and replaced it with Kool-Aid. We, we basically made a Christianity that is easy to drink. It's easy to drink. It's shallow. 
And the moment suffering comes, our kids, our youth, even ourselves will reject it because it's shallow. We're just familiar with something. We don't worship him. And I would venture to say that there are many people in our churches today that are simply familiar with Jesus, but they're not, they're not amazed by him. They don't worship him. And there may be even some of us in here. You would confess that Jesus is Christ. You would confess that he died for your sins. You come to church. But if you're really honest and you will really take that step of faith and examine your own heart, there's, there's nothing there. There's no genuine worship there. There's, there's no prayer there's no recognition of sin and repentance. I think there are many that might be like these people in Nazareth. He's the carpenter. He's the son of Mary. I go to church. I know a lot about the Bible. You might recognize something unique about him, but you don't worship him. He's just an add-on, something that you can culturally participate in, but the weight of your sin has not driven us to our knees at the foot of the cross in gratitude. We are not called to be familiar with Jesus. We are called to worship Jesus. And it's not enough for me or anyone else to stand up here and just give you tools to to be familiar with him, to just know a lot about him. It's not enough for you to just make sure your kids know a lot about Jesus or that your roommate is familiar with him, that he's a part of your life in some way. We are to model worshiping Jesus. Now, Let me say this, and we're going to talk about this again later. The genuine receiving of the gospel is not up to us. We know this. But as a church, we must ensure that we are positioning every person, every teenager, every child, that they see the true glory of Jesus, the depth of our sin, true worship, that that we are a praying people, a people who repent, confess of their sins. And when that person confesses, the community rallies around them in encouragement and love. That we're honest. Um, you know, for those of you who are married in the room, this concept uh, probably makes sense. Because in every marriage, there comes a point where you just become familiar with each other. You, you learn routines uh, and your marriage becomes about taking care of kids, responsibilities. And after a while, you realize, oh, I don't actually know my spouse anymore. Does that make sense? You're just roommates. You become fam- so familiar with each other that that familiarity steals the joy out of being married, a, a joy being with that person. And maybe I'm alone, I don't know. Um, but the question is, in your marriage, how do you break out of that? How do you break that familiarity? comes to intentional pursuit, intentional honesty. You identify the things in your heart and your mind that are keeping you from really being genuine with one another, and it's no different with Jesus, that we break the familiarity by intentionally intentionally engaging Jesus with all of our hearts. We position, we can't make our hearts worship, but we can position our hearts too. We can position our hearts before the word of God. We can position our hearts in prayer. We can position our hearts in community and ask God, God, open my mind. Help me to see who you really are. Drive me to my knees. 
You can't make it happen, but he can, and you can position your heart to receive it well. I'm going to position myself, God, to, to know who you are, to pray, to hear counsel and encouragement from the people of God. And God, I'm asking that you would work. I'm asking that you would work. That we identify the things that are keeping us from worshiping. Now, if you look in verse 5, we have this very interesting scripture. It says, he could, do a mighty, he, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So, uh, this is a difficult verse, and it, and it reads strange. So, let me tell you what I think this is saying. Um, I don't think this means that Jesus was robbed of his power because of their unbelief. That because they didn't believe, he was weaker in some sense. I don't think that's what it's saying. Because keep in mind, when you come to a verse like this and you're like, I'm not really sure what this means, you have to interpret it based on what the rest of Scripture says, right? And nowhere does it talk, in any place, does it talk about how Jesus was weak in one area. Does that make sense? So it wouldn't make sense that he was weak because of their faith, because that is not anywhere else. So let's just push that to the side. So if it's not saying that, what is it saying? Um, I think it's saying that if he did do many miracles, so if he did many miracles, despite their unbelief, then he would not have been staying true to his mission. Jesus was not interested in being a simple traveling healer, okay? His ultimate goal, wherever he went, was that people might repent and believe. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And part of that demonstration of the kingdom coming was that he had compassion, he healed, he cast, casted out demons. But it's always centered around revealing his true identity as God. He was not just going to heal just because. Oh, you're sick? Let me fix that for you. His healing is always connected to faith. The miracles and the healing were always in the context of faith and repentance. I think that's why he leaves in verse 6. If they aren't interested in repenting and believing, then he isn't interested in working among them. He's not going to heal just for the sake of healing. So it says in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, I don't really honestly know what to say about that. There, I know this. There are only two times that Jesus marveled. Only twice. This was the first one. The second one was the centurion's faith in Luke 7, 9. He marveled at his faith. And so all that to say, I find that interesting, that there were two things that made Jesus go, wow. When, when someone believed when it made sense that they wouldn't, and when someone doesn't believe when it's expected that they would. So I'll just leave that there. I find that interesting, that those are the two times that Jesus stepped back and went, wow. Now, after Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, is going to send out his disciples. And we aren't going to have time uh, to go into every cultural thing in this text. There's a lot of Eastern culture that shapes our understanding of this text. But just at the front, let me say, we have to be careful with this moment. <clears throat> there are some who have tried to take this next text and say, well, this is, this is exactly how we should be doing evangelism today. And here's what I would say. If you want to take the literal step-by-step -step process 
of this moment, then that would mean that I would ask you to leave your wallet here, to not go buy any food after church, strip down in your underwear, and then and only then can you go and proclaim Christ. And by the way, you get a stick to fend off wild dogs, okay? I think that would be pretty weird. And someone would call the cops when we all walked out of here in our underwear. Um, just saying. Um, so I, I, I think we have to be careful with this text to not say, okay, this is how you do evangelism. And this is the only way that you can do evangelism. There are incredible understandings of more about how we posture to the people around us in our evangelism in this text. So let me explain to you what is happening here and tell you how that applies to this today. Verse 7, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, to this point, the disciples have been watching Jesus. This is discipleship right here. They've been watching Jesus, right? They've been studying Jesus. They've been learning from Jesus, and the time has come for them to participate in what they've been watching. This is how discipleship works. You model to someone what it looks like to read the Bible, to pray, to share the gospel, and then over time, you say, okay, now it's your turn. And you, turn, you go from watcher to participator, right? I don't know if that's a word, but I used it, okay? Um, and so they would have known this was coming. I mean, remember, Jesus told Peter, John, Andrew, and James that they would be fishers of men. In chapter 3, Jesus told the disciples that he would send them out to preach. So this is no surprise. The disciples were probably waiting for this day, anticipating it, that, hey, we get to do what he does. He calls them two by, to go two by two. And so the first thing to note here is that we are meant to be on mission with our community of faith. This idea of two was normal all throughout the scriptures, even the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you were going to give a testimony, it had to be done in twos. That's the only way it was legitimate, if it was done in twos. The transfiguration, which we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, Jesus is surrounded by how many witnesses? Two, right? Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. The prophets they brought testimony. Yes, this is the Son of God. And the main point with the two by two is that that I think is true for us today, is that the mission of God is meant to be shared with others. It was never meant to be done alone. And the early church ran with that idea. And you see it in Acts. It's obvious that they took that idea of two, that instruction, and they carried it forward. Acts 8.14, Peter and John go to Samaria. Acts 11.30, Paul and Barnabas are doing ministry together. Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas split up, we talked about that several weeks ago, when they split up, Paul teams up with Silas, and Barnabas teams up with Mark. They, there is shared ministry, shared mission all throughout the scripture. It's never a one-person show. It's never a one-person show. And I, and I think, if we're honest, the Western church especially, and, and even all across the world to a degree, the Western church has tried to make it a one-person show per church. Does that make sense? This... Which is why I step away once a month, and I sit under one of our elders teaching, because this isn't a one-person show. It's not healthy for you to only hear my voice. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for me. That all throughout the scriptures, we see a plurality in the church, a plurality of leadership, and we see a togetherness in our mission. We have, I have partners in my ministry. I'm their partner. It's, not, it's never a one-person Show, But the big idea here, the two by two, is that nowhere in Scripture does it point to the idea of an individualistic faith 
where your faith is always meant to be done on your own and by yourself, and I can just sit at home and listen to someone online, you don't see that. It's never meant to be an individualistic faith, and it's never meant to be an individualistic mission. We are meant to follow Christ together, and we are meant to proclaim Christ together. And then Jesus goes on, and he tells them what they should or should not take with them. Verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Okay, so you're going to go out, and you get four things. You get a belt, you get sandals, you get a staff, and you get a tunic. Now, the staff was probably meant to fend off robbers and wild animals. I mean, that was legitimately a thing. Um, But what's the deal with the tunics? You ever wondered that? What's the deal with the tunics? Well, actually, hold on. Let's come back to that. Um, I don't want to get there yet. Um, But let's talk about what you can't take. You can't take bread, a bag, money, and you can't um, have this second tunic. In other words, you basically get nothing and a stick. So verse 10, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now, if you go to Luke, you get a better picture of what's happening here. This is where Jesus sends out the 72. So not the same story, but similar principles. Luke 10, 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And if you remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So when you go out and you come to a house, say, peace be to this house. And if a person was to receive you, then your peace would be returned to you. What what does this all mean, right? So if your peace was returned to you, you could stay, they would feed you and care for you, and they would essentially be partners in your ministry. And you don't go house to house because that's rude. You can't just leave a house because you don't like what they food, what what food they serve you. You eat what is set before you. This is where you get the famous missionary saying, right? Where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, you might know it. I will swallow, thank you, right? So where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, I will swallow. When we we get some short-term missions going, we're going to say that, right? Um, But there are two things happening here when it comes to our understanding of the mission of Christ. The first thing that we learn from this moment is we are to proclaim Christ in humility and dependence. Leave your money and your social status at the door. He says, don't take any money so, and, and, and put on only one tunic. So this is where I want to talk about the tunic. During this time, you would have an, an undergarment. Uh, uh, and it's basically underwear. It's, it's just your basic robe, your basic tunic. You, you didn't leave your house with just an under tunic. That was just weird, right? But you had an outer tunic. This was useful for warmth. But more than that, it was a way that you could identify who you are, right? If you were rich, you would put jewels on it or stones. Uh, You would put information about your family, uh, maybe what tribe your family belonged to. And so if I looked at you, I would know whether you're rich or poor. I would know what kind of family you come from, and I would probably know what tribe of Israel your family belonged to. So 
by removing this second tunic, which I think is what Jesus is referring to, um, you are essentially stripping yourself of any identification. So any social status or wealth that you would typically be known by, that was removed. And it forced a humility on you when you came to someone's house. So if they received you, it wasn't because you had a lot of money or because you had a certain status, okay? It was kind of leveling the playing field, and I'm coming to you in humility. We also learn from this moment that we are to proclaim Christ's independence. The disciples are completely dependent on God in their journey, right? They have no money, and they have no food, and Jesus is essentially removing the temptation to rely on themselves in their journey. We are helpless, but God is our helper. We are poor, but God is rich. We can do nothing on our own, but it is he who works. And so when we go, we don't waive the promise of wealth. We don't waive the promise of status. The only thing we bring is the gospel of Christ. Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary who served in China, one of my heroes, he was, lived in the 1800s. He has a famous quote, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And so we go into the world in full humility, in full dependence. God, I come, and to you I bring nothing but the gospel message, Jesus Christ. And I'm fully dependent on him in this mission. We put our wealth and our social status at the door, and we put on Christ. The second thing we learn from this text is that God is at work before we even encounter someone. That's the whole idea of your peace being returned to you. God is at work in people's lives. And what we see here is Jesus is saying, hey, I'm already at work ahead of you in preparation for your proclamation. That right now, God is at work in others' lives, preparing them for conversations that we would have with them. He's opening their minds. He's opening their eyes. He's opening their ears to hear. And at the appointed time, he will put you in a conversation with someone, a conversation that he has already prepared. And, and many of you have experienced this before and not realize it. Like when you've ever said to someone, you know, they're sharing their struggles or just you're talking and you just say, hey, can I just pray with you? Or hey, can I just tell you like what my faith has taught me and what Jesus has taught me about how I think about those things? Is that okay? And then they receive that with gladness? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, that's God at work. You're, 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 you're saying, peace be with you. I have a peace to offer. And they're returning that back to you. That is God at work ahead of you and preparing conversations and moments. Like that is God's sovereignty on display saying, hey, I've, I've prepared works. Ephesians 2, I've prepared works for you to walk in. And he's at work. Peace be to this house. And if they receive that, they return that back to you. That is God at work. However, and we know this, the reality is that we will not always be received well in our proclamation. We won't. So verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So we can't go into everything on this, but shaking off the dust in the midst of rejection is the idea that I am not accountable to your salvation. I am not accountable to your salvation. It doesn't mean that we don't care. 
It doesn't mean that we have permission not to love them. It doesn't mean that if your neighbor rejects the gospel, you take a thousand toothpicks and put it in their yard. Don't do that. Just gave you a really good prank idea, though. But by shaking off the dust, you are releasing the burden of salvation from yourself to God. Because here's the deal. God has not and never will give you the responsibility of someone else's salvation. He never will. He will never give you that responsibility. He does give you the responsibility to love and to share and to serve and to cry and to to pray. But the one thing that he would not give us as human beings, fallen human beings, is the responsibility of salvation. That is his alone to bear. That is his alone to bear. You cannot change someone's heart. You cannot open their eyes. Only God can do that. And if they reject Jesus, then they will be accountable to them, not to you. They will not be accountable to you and their rejection. They will be accountable to God. In Acts 18, Paul is preaching in Corinthians, uh, in Corinth, and he is receiving nothing but rejection from them. So in Acts 18, 6, it says, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's essentially saying, I'm freeing myself of the responsibility of your judgment. Like, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are transformed by his grace. We are called to be on mission for Christ. But don't think too highly of ourselves. Right? It's, 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 it is an offer of humility to have the freedom to say, my heart is broken because they don't know, but I have no power. And you know where that drives you? To your knees to pray. It's the understanding that if they are going to be saved, if they are going to to understand the joy of salvation and hope in Christ, man, it's not going to be because of me. Because if, if the responsibility of salvation was on your shoulders, who do you think would be tempted for you to give yourself the praise, or to give the praise for? Yourself. It's God who gets the praise for every salvation. He's the one who saves them. But he has chosen to use us in that mission. He has chosen, and he has prepared conversations and places for you to walk into and say, I have a story to tell you. I have good news. He's prepared those moments. But he is the one who does the saving. So take heart, right? Your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, the people in the nations that he has promised will be at the throne, right? Share a meal with them. Love them. Send an encouraging message to them, right? Bring them dinner one week. Say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. Love them. Encourage them. Talk about your, your faith. But more than anything, pray because it is God who does the work. And I really hope, man, I think, I think God's got a lot of growing to do in us as a faith family, that we would be people of prayer. God has a lot of growth to do in us, and I think he's beginning that and doing that. And that's my hope, that we would just be a people that pray, that pray. So, first, let's pray that God would move us from familiarity to worship. That if that's you, if you kind of look back at your life and say, hey, I've just been kind of familiar with Jesus, but I don't really know him. Man, ask God that, that, that God would, he would break that. 
He would break that in you. And maybe for the first time in your life, you would, you would confess and you would repent and you would see the joy of salvation in Christ and then pray that God would be working ahead of us and that we would be obedient to walk in those works that he's promised, preparing every conversation that might, he might demonstrate his power in the lives of others, in our families, in our city, in the nations, that he would save them and we would marvel we would be amazed at who he is and his mighty works.